Our text has been read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we're jumping right into the middle of a text, and so uh, we need to get a little context about um, where we're at in scriptures, where we find ourselves at today. Uh, The Apostle Paul, of course, is the writer, the one who penned these words to a, a church, a collection of believers who called home a section in southern Greece known for its, at this time, busyness. They were very busy people. A lot of trade, a lot of commerce coming through Corinth. Um, A lot of uh, athletic sports and the Olympic Games and a lot of that originated from that region and was going on during this time or a form of it. And so the, the, the setting here is a very busy place, but it's also a place Corinth was known for being a place of low morals. In fact, there was a term that was coined for the people of Corinth and would be applied to someone who had low morals, they would say about that person, they have been Corinthianized, meaning that they're acting like a pagan that comes from Corinth. Not a very pleasant place. Paul had ministered to this congregation, actually planted this church, and had lived among them for 18 months. And you have the record of that in Acts chapter 18, if you want to read that at your own leisure. And one of the things we begin to read about when we understand that Paul was the the planter of this church is that he experienced uh, some feelings and some emotions that I think any church planter has experienced. And he records those in the book of Acts. For example, he talks about being rejected uh, as he proclaimed the gospel, and particularly among the religious people. Religious people in the communities around him rejected his message. It was also a slow start, and anybody that knows anything about church planning knows that more than likely it starts very gradually and grows, and it takes some time and patience. Um, he, he records that he met, began meeting with uh, two individuals in the city of Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, and they were, they were of the same trade as he, so he lived with them and kind of made that his home base as he went out and ministered in the community. Also, it was hard work. Paul talks about himself being a tent maker and and being a person who had another job on the side. So he gave himself vigorously to his physical job and then as well to the ministry as well. But along those aches and heartaches, as we read about in Acts chapter 18, he quickly begins to talk about the blessings of planting a church. And he adds this in Acts chapter 18, that many of the Corinthian believers, or, or believed rather, and trusted in the Lord and were baptized. So many in this town of Corinth became believers in Christ through his ministry. What a grand experience that was to witness the transformation of folks, as Nick just talked about, from death to life. Much of this letter is set against the backdrop of defense. Paul is defending his ministry, his ministry to the Corinthian believers, and not just the clearing of his name, But rather, it was uniquely, his defense was uniquely linked to the message that he proclaimed. The message of the gospel. The content with Christ's church, that content is founded upon and united by the gospel. Now, most of you here today are aware of our family's connection uh, with Mercy Hill Church and the efforts that we have in partnering together for this church plant in Darien. Just one hour north of you. But I assume that that's probably not the church, first church plant that you've heard about. In fact, some of you here today were a part of when this church originally planted uh, years and years ago known as Celebration Baptist back in the day. 
So the question that I have for you this morning, what I want us to think through in our text this morning is, where do we begin to think through the startup of a church? Where does Paul have us concentrate and think through as it relates to God's church and how it is to be formed? The message that it proclaims. If a church, by definition, is the gospel made visible, shouldn't how we begin matter? I think it does. And I want to challenge you to think through that with me this morning. I've chosen the text of Scripture this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And one of the reasons is because the name of our church in Darien comes from this text, Treasuring Christ Church. Uh, But also, I think it, it correctly portrays the mission, the proclamation of the church that everything else around the church becomes dim as we treasure the person of Christ. It's not that we as a church make Christ magnificent as if he needs our help with that. That's just who he is. And in fact, the idea of supplementing the good news of Christ is something that Paul, in the first part of chapter number four, the text that we didn't read, the verses leading up to verse number seven, he, he rebukes. He says, we don't tamper with God's word. But rather, we give ourselves to the statement of open truth. We proclaim not ourselves, he writes, but Jesus Christ. So it is my intent this morning for a few moments to lay out for you the goal, the ambition, the thinking behind a church plant in Darien, Georgia, or a church plant anywhere. And what you will hear this morning is not the efforts of a clever marketing strategy, You won't hear a series of witty, crafty statements that make you smile and feel good. But I wanted to return to the simplicity of the scripture. What does the scripture teach us is important to remember as we lay this foundation. And so the sermon in a nutshell this morning, I'm going to say it in the form of a statement, and then we'll work through each line of this. Through the church modeling of the gospel, the saving work of God is known through our weakness. His promise to keep us becomes known even through the trying seasons of life, and that even through suffering and death, maybe even especially death, God's ultimate glory is on display. So let's look at those thoughts together this morning. First one taken from verse number seven, that in human weakness, God's power to save is pronounced. But we have, he writes, this treasure in jars of clay, treasure jars of clay. Now, the treasure that Paul is speaking of here is the ministry of mercy, the proclamation of the gospel. He, he refers to it by several different phrasings in these first few chapters of 2 Corinthians. The message of Christ's atonement for sinners, we could say, or the ministry of the new covenant, he says. That hope and that freedom which belong to those who submit to Christ. This is the treasure that you and I have as believers. We have this treasure, he writes. It has been given to us. It is ours. I am Christ. Christ is mine, Paul would say. And what a blessed and humbling reality that is, isn't it? That we possess the treasure of Christ in the gospel. And I I think about that because many in the town in which we live, in, in Darien, cannot identify with the claim of Paul here. They cannot say truthfully, we have this treasure. We possess the wonderful news that is contained in the gospel. It is ours. Christ is ours. There's a deep sense of lostness, a deep sense of despair in the town in which we are planting 
Treasuring Christ Church. Some of us had the opportunity yesterday to meet and do a prayer walk through the town of Darien, all five blocks of it or whatever it is. And in conversations with some of the Mercy Hill folks that came down, by the way, thank you for coming down and encouraging us and walking with us and praying with us. We greatly appreciate that. In, in conversations with some, some folks, they were asking questions about what makes uh, Darien tick and what's the history of it. And our town is completely full of history. If you're a history buff, you would love studying the, the city of Darien and knowing the history of it. But I, I think about that because the deep history, the deep dark history of Darien for, for, a, for a long time has prevented people from seeking and from experiencing this treasure that we talk about. But Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay and that phrase jars of clay is not a reference to the band in the 90s. If you know, you know. Jars of clay here illustrates something weak, something that is fragile. An earthly vessel would be another way to interpret that. So Paul is speaking here, obviously, of our human frame. Our bodies, our beings possess, have this treasure. And so Paul's speaking here of our human frame that we are able to speak from the vantage point of experience. And why is this the case? Why is it that God uses the avenue of human weakness to announce his power to save. Why would he entrust us with that task? Look at the second part of verse number seven. In order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's reminiscent of another text in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter one, verse number 26. Listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things, to nothing, things that are, so that... No human being might boast in the presence of God. Church, hear this. Yours and my weakness is by God's design. The fact that we are jars of clay, the fact that we are created in a very weak way is by God's design so that his surpassing power might be shown. And it's interesting to me that we push back against the acknowledgement of that weakness, as if it is something that shouldn't be said of us that we are weak. And Paul's embracing this. We are convinced somehow sometimes that God's plan to save sinners must somehow involve us as a meaningful contributor. And Paul says, no, no. It's in your weakness that God's power is made to be what it is. It's pronounced in human weakness. Paul's statement, in fact, here is that the power to save not only comes from God, it belongs to him. It not only comes from God, it belongs to him. One theologian put it like this, and I love this. Oh, that God would inhabit our weakness like a Rembrandt painting with a picture frame of straw. Or like the hope diamond mounted in a setting of tinfoil and scotch tape. 
he gets all the attention and honor. And we get the great privilege of revealing him just as it should be, just as I want to be. Amen, church? The wonderful thing about planting a church in a small rural community like Darien is that there is lots of room to be involved in a meaningful way in the life of our community and serving others. And that service often provides an opportunity, a a window for ministry in the name of Christ. I've shared some ideas with your pastoral staff of hopefully in the, the coming year of opportunities for our church to partner with Mercy Hill to reach Darien. Mercy Hill, you do recognize that the church body you are a part of here in Yulee is an anomaly, right? It's a rare thing to have a church like this in a community and a, a solid biblically teaching, a friendly, a welcoming, a church of grace, a church that, as I mentioned earlier, is led by godly elders. Not every community is privy to that. Darien is not. We have a treasure to share in Darien that despite our weakness, Christ has powerfully moved in the lives of his people. He has saved us from the destruction and despair that was our namesake outside of the cross. And this is the message that, and the hope that Treasuring Christ Church will weekly and daily proclaim. Not only has Christ saved us, but I want to highlight this from, from verses 8 and 9. The preserving work of God. In the preserving of the believer, God's promise to keep is broadcast. In the preserving of the believer, not only the saving of the believer, but in the keeping of the believer, God's promise to keep is broadcast. And this is such a powerful proclamation that Paul makes here that God will not lose any that are his. If you're a history buff and you want to do some reading on our area, there's... um, there's a lot of history. Our, our, our town is literally flooded with a troubled past, I would say. Um, matter of fact, from the place that we will meet next week, it's the second story of a restaurant that sits looking over the marsh and looking back towards Brunswick. And about a mile from that view, so as the congregation sits next Sunday and they'll be looking out the glass window, about a mile's distance, or maybe a little less than a mile, there's a monument made up of a plantation that used to be there where the uh, single most sold off slaves in a single day happened a mile from where we're at. 432 slaves were sold in one day. It's a sad history. It's a dark history. Our, our town is, is, has had many things. In the Civil War, the town was burned to the ground. And there were some things that happened as a result of that. There's a movie, I think, I don't want to promote movies, but The Glory, Glory Road or something like Glory, uh, is, is written or, or based on our town. So there, there's a lot of history. There's, there's a book called Praying for Sheetrock that you could pick up if you're a history buff and like to read about it that, that talks about our town. But even though we are years removed from some of these events, it has left a stamp, a dark stain on the community in which we are going to minister and serve the Lord and plant this church. And against that backdrop, think about this. We proclaim a Savior who rescues and will never forsake his children. The Apostle Paul knew about suffering, didn't he? He was familiar with pain. And and much of the pain that he experienced in life was directly tied 
to the message that he proclaimed about Christ. In verses number 8 and 9, what you see is a pattern here of saying one thing that is true about the Christian, and then Paul seems to say, well, it's not exactly true. And I think it's easy to to read this phrasing in verses 8 and 9 and sort of gloss over uh, the first part of each one of these, as if Paul is making light of pain, and that's not the case. We don't need to gloss over the pain, the frustration, the depression, the confusion, the discouragement that Paul is describing here. It is real pain in Paul's life, not just illusions of pain. Look what he says in verse number 8. We are afflicted in every way. The idea of affliction is the pressures of life weighing down on a person. The pressures of life seeming so significant that you just can't go on. We are afflicted. Paul writes from personal experience in every way. But not crushed. This crushing has not overtaken us, Paul writes. One way to say this that might be helpful is to say that Christians might be at a loss, but they are not utterly lost. That's the difference between being afflicted and being crushed by that affliction, nor will we be because of God's sustaining work within us. I am perplexed, he says. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. He said there might be a lack of resources. We don't know where our next meal is going to come from. And yet, the Christian is never without help or means. God never forsakes his own. We are persecuted, he writes, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In other words, where the world condemns us, the Lord does not. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? So the obvious implication here in this phrasing that that Paul uses in verse number 8 and 9 is that God is the one doing the preserving. We are not preserving ourselves. Remember, we are weak vessels. Vessels of pottery. But God is preserving us. We are jars of clay. We are weak. He is the one who holds us fast. He is the one who sees us through the trying seasons of life. And isn't this a timely meditation for Christians? Don't we live in a world where it just seems like every day there's some kind of chaotic event happening that you're like, oh no, the world's coming to an end today, right? And and the world around us that doesn't know Christ maybe even more so has that fear, that anxiety resting upon them. And yet the constant for those who make up Christ's church rest in is that Jesus will never fail to keep us. Now, if we're honest, we would likely rather experience God's power in our lives without all of the troubles, right? We would rather experience God's power in different ways. We want to move through our lives protected from all the chaos and challenges that come our way. And the problem with that, with that way of thinking is that it's entirely our way of thinking, not God's. The Lord would have us demonstrate that there is an obvious love and a joy and a peace throughout our lives that can never be explained in terms of us, but must always be explained in terms of God's work in us. In the short months of our core group's 
gathering, and some of them are with us this morning. We're going to have a word of prayer. I understand at the end of the service today where you guys pray over us. But we've been gathering together for about eight months. And one of our prayers has been continually that the Lord would have us welcome and receive whomever he sends our way. And you know uh, the, the phrase, you better be careful what you pray for. It seems like that God is beginning to answer that prayer in very tough ways. I could tell you some stories of the folks that have been interacting with some of our church, church folks and some of the stories behind those stories. It seems to be the path that our church is on. Some difficult situations, some hurting people, and a community itself that has struggled to understand the persevering hand of God. It's the message of the church. It's what the church is founded on, that God not only saves, he keeps. Will you pray with Mercy, Mercy Hill? Will you pray with us that the keeping power of our God will be experienced in Darien? And then lastly, thirdly, I want us to look at the process of dying, that the glory of God is displayed in this process of dying. Again, another odd way to phrase. All three of these are very odd phrasings, but they're intended that way. Look what he says in verse number 10. Always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, I think we would all agree that if Christians had a say-so in the manner in which God's glory becomes known to the world around us, death and suffering wouldn't be our choice. That wouldn't be our choice. Why can't God's glory be manifested primarily through the good times? World poverty being cured tomorrow. World hunger being not a thing anymore. We think God's glory would be so manifested in that if the church could play a role in that, God would just seem so glorious to the world. He would appear so glorious to the world. And yet that's not God's way of revealing himself. It's through this dying. Paul says that the death of Jesus is the only means by which the life of Jesus is something we come to know. I'll say that again. The, the death of Jesus is the only means in which the life of Jesus can be experienced. And Paul says here that this is something we carry about with us always. We carry this with us everywhere we go. The death of Christ, the cross of Christ is what we lift high so that his life, that eternal life through him might come into open view. Ray Steadman writes about this, that the cross was a place of physical weakness of rejection by the proud and arrogant world around him. It was a place of obscurity, a place where he was willing to lose everything that he had built and trust God to bring it back and make it significant. That is what we were talking about him. And Stedman asked this question of us, are you willing to give up all the things that make you look important to other people to take the place of obscurity if necessary? Trusting God to use it however he will. That's really the application to this, isn't it? Always caring about the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be an open view, may be manifested in our bodies. 
This is what Corinthian believers should have noticed, should have observed about Paul's life himself. That in the listing of his sufferings and the letters that he writes to them describing these hardships, they would be able to see his association with the sufferings of Christ. He endured earthly scorn as to bring them the saving message, the life-giving message of Christ. And Jesus expects this of his church. He expects this of us, that we demonstrate his suffering through our suffering so that the life of Jesus may come into open view. I read an illustration this week of an early church historian by the name of Eusebius who wrote about the martyrdom of a woman named Blandina who was killed by uh, the Roman emperor Aurelius. Other believers who knew Blandina were fearful that she might not hold up under the persecution, and they were fearful when she got selected, pulled out of the crowd, and began to be tortured. The story writes that she, she was tortured repeatedly, so much so that the torturers themselves were exhausted by evening. And yet, Blandina was still breathing. And she was still holding fast to her confession. The soldiers then took her, hung her up on a post in order to expose her as food for the wild beast. Eusebius adds, she looked as if she was hanging in the form of a cross. And through her ardent prayer, she, she stimulated great enthusiasm in those undergoing their ordeals who in their agony saw with their outward eyes in the person of their sister, the one who is crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that any man who has suffered for the glory of Christ has fellowship forever with the living God. The other saw the life of Christ manifested in Blandina, in her mortal flesh, and they were strengthened for they saw the, the life of Christ manifested in her. This is how God uses yours and my sufferings in our obedience in the midst of that suffering as a means of manifesting the life of Christ to others. So what does this have to do with a church plant in Darien? It's unlikely that we will be called upon to suffer as Blandina did for our confession of Christ. It's possible, but it's unlikely. There nevertheless rest upon believers, believers in Darien, believers in Yuli, a call to experience, a guarantee that we will experience hardships. And that as we experience these hardships, we are to graciously accept this as God's plan so that his greatness and his glory might be shown. Remember where we started in verse number seven. The message of Christ that we herald, the gospel, is so great that if it weren't carried to others in such a state of weakness through jars of clay, others might be tempted to give us the credit, to direct the glory to us instead of Christ. And this is why Paul continues this thought in verse number 12. So, death is at work in us but life in you he's rejoicing in this he's saying this with tears in his eyes Corinthians don't fall in line and just march to the orders of your society receive the suffering that you're receiving well 
Because in that, the life of Christ is manifest, is shown. I don't know about you, but the longer I live, the older that I age, the more I sense the nearness of my end on earth. And I'm not old by any means, I don't think. But along with that aging comes a sense, a growing discontentment for going through the motions of things spiritually without meaning. When you consider that you might have another 20 or 30 years to serve at the same level, perhaps, in ministry, I don't have time. I'm not going to give myself to things that are just going through the motions. I have no desire in Darien to become known as a church planner and go speak at conferences. I have no desire for that whatsoever. It's not me trying to make my dad and mom proud by doing this. It's not simply to have an audience for my voice to be heard. The purpose of treasuring Christ's church and the plant that we are committed to as a body of believers is that the life of Christ might be experienced by many throughout the community of Darien and beyond. That Christ might be prized and treasured through our weakness as a church. That his power to keep those who come to him forever will be a trusted reality. And then in suffering, through the death of his saints, God might receive the glory that is due to his name. And all the people of God said, amen. amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. May it be so. May the amen that were just uttered from our lips be in agreement with Paul that, Lord, you are powerful to save. And that power is most noticeable most openly seen through admission of our own weakness and living and embracing that weakness, not giving ourselves to the sinful passions of our weakness, but understanding that we are but instruments in your hand. May the people of Mercy Hill, may the people of Treasuring Christ partner together in this weakness and proclaim your power to save. May we also be faithful and and convinced that you have the power also to keep, preserve, and that even as we suffer, even as we endure hardships and setbacks and frustrations and depression and anxiety, all these things that come about as a natural result of the fall, may we understand, Lord, that you will never fail us, that you are the power that sustains us in the midst of our weakness. And then, Lord, even in death, may your glory be known. And Lord, when I am no longer residing at 1091 North Pine Street in Darien, when my house is sold to someone else, my possessions are no longer there, may the name of Christ continue to be magnified in Darien and beyond. Because it is not about us. It is truly about the glories of Christ that endure for all times. We worship you for this reality. We trust this church in your watch care, and we ask that you would use us for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, 
verse 7 said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What a treasure we have. I hope you're reminded of that. And what a responsibility we have to not just hold our treasure close, but we're, it's to let the world see it. To, we're broken. Let the world see it. Let them shine through you wherever you go. You, we go in this room. The amount of influence that we are, 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 are given is so great. The many lives that each of us have the opportunity to impact and to touch. To give them a chance to hear the gospel, to see the gospel, to respond to the gospel. Let us accept that challenge. It's a challenge for Mercy Hill, it's a challenge for a church plant in Darien. And may we be found faithful. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you so much for this service. Lord, in this time of invitation we're about to have, God, we just want to honor you and follow you. Uh, we want to be found faithful. Lord, help us recognize the treasure of the gospel. And Lord, that, that even though we are broken in so many ways that Lord you 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 are in us you reside in us and Lord you do that to shine forth through us to not make us great but to show how great you are and so Lord use us use us each one in this room to reveal how great a God you are and in this time of invitation Lord may we just be found faithful may we be bold and encouraged to follow wherever you lead it's in Jesus name we pray when a